Well, we just ended the book of Mark. And Mark has 16 chapters in it. Starts with the birth of Yeshua and it ends with his death and resurrection. It was written by Mark, who was one of the traveling companions of Paul. Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples of Yeshua, but later went on to write the earliest account, the, the, the oldest account we have of the gospel um, and the, the testimony, the life, and the ministry of Yeshua. And uh, we did all that to kind of set a foundation for what we're going to get into now, which is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is arguably one of my most favorite, probably top five favorite books in all of the, all of the Bible. And I just always wanted to teach on Acts. I've been doing this about four years now, and I haven't had a chance to. So, you know, I said, you know what, we're going to, when we finish the Torah cycle, we're going to move into the book of Acts. Um, the, the book of Acts is, is a history book. It's not a theological treatise like some other books might be. Like some of the epistles are like, hey, you need to live this way or do this or avoid that. The book of Acts is just like a history book. And I love history. And I love biblical history and ancient history. This is right up my alley. But I want to kind of give you an overview, kind of acts by the numbers here, if you will. Um, some facts about Acts. Um, first one, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts written by a man named Luke. And we're going to talk about who Luke is here in just a minute. But he's the most underrated New Testament author. Now, when I ask you the question, you're going to know the answer now. But when I asked you the question, maybe before you walked in this building, and I said to you, who do you think wrote most of the New Testament? Who would you maybe say? Paul. And I said, okay, well, actually, based on word count and volume of ink on paper, Luke is the, he takes the prize. Luke has, Luke authored 27% of the New Testament. Paul, 23% of the New Testament in terms of volume of words. Now, Paul wrote most books, but Paul cheated a little bit. He had some pretty small books in there, didn't he? <laughs> But in terms of Luke, Luke is a very long gospel, very wordy gospel, very long chapters, very detailed information. Acts, 28 chapters long, very long chapters, very, very dense material. So Luke takes the prize. Luke is in the top five of all biblical authors in terms of the volume which they'll write. Luke is in the top five. That's significant for Luke. I mean, we're talking, he's up there with like David in the Psalms. Um, up there with Moses and the Torah. It's very significant. Luke is going to be one of the key players and, and recorders of the events of the New Testament and the emergence of this movement called the Way or the Christians or the Nazarenes, as it becomes called. So the book of Acts is written in this ancient language we call Greek. Okay? No, it wasn't origin, originally written in the King James Version in Elizabethan Asia. I'm sorry if I bust, bust any bubbles in there, but no, it's written in Greek, right? And so it's written to Greek speakers, written to a Greek audience. We're going to talk to you about audiences here. Luke covers about 30 years of history. All right, 30 years of history. That takes us from about 30 to the early 60s AD. All right, 30 years of history. It excludes some key events, and this is going to help us date the composition of Luke. What does Luke not have that if it was written around the time that this transpired, he would definitely include it? What do you think that might be? I can think of two major ones. What, is the what does Luke not have? I heard Howard say it. The destruction, the, the destruction of the temple, which happened in when? 70. Very, very pivotal, massive event in Jewish history and Israeli history was the destruction of the second temple. Luke did not record it in the book of Acts. That tells us, it's a hint, it's circumstantial evidence to point to the fact that Luke was written and Luke finished writing the book of Acts before the destruction of the temple. So, you know, early part of 70 or, or earlier. What else did Paul exclude? Or not Paul, hint, hint. Luke exclude. We leave Paul off in the book of Acts in prison in Rome. Is that, did he die of natural causes in prison? Was he free? What happened to Paul? He was executed, he was beheaded. But does, does Luke record that in the book of Acts? No. Which helps us date. We know that Luke was there with Paul on, on a couple of his missionary journeys. We know that if Luke is going to write something about Paul, it's certainly going to be his execution. But he doesn't. So that helps us date the book of Acts. Now, we put the, the, date, the, the date of the composition of Acts around the early 60s. Early 60s, okay? Um, uh, we know, that, we know that Luke is a, a non-Jewish follower of Yeshua. How do we know that? Well, if you go to Colossians 
chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, Paul says so. Paul gives a list of the Jewish followers of Yeshua that were kind of like his traveling companions. And then he gives a list of non-Jews that were his traveling companions. And he records Luke as being one of them. We also know that Luke is a doctor. And in that verse, you'll find he describes Luke as being a physician, a doctor. But he's also a historian, apparently. We see that the book of Acts is primarily focused on two main characters. Everything pivots on these two guys. Do you know who those two guys are? Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul are the two main characters of this book. You're going to find out. The book of Acts is so accurate and it it is, I mean, withstood years and years of scrutiny and criticism. And here's why. Because Luke did a lot of investigation. A lot of, as as he describes it, careful investigation. There are 80 geographical references in the book of Acts. All of them check out to be true. There's 100 people mentioned by name in the book of Acts. All of them check out to be true. There's several precise political titles that are used like consul, proconsul, tetrarch. They add to the validity and the historicity of this book. There's 24 speeches in, uh, recorded in the book of, of Acts. And then it ends abruptly, right before the death of Paul and before the destruction of the second temple. So it's not a comprehensive list. It's not a comprehensive history book or textbook of this, of this movement. But Luke's doing a pretty good job. Some people might say that Luke was paid by a man to, it was commissioned by a man to research and, com- and, and, and compile the history of this movement. And um, we don't know for sure. But Luke is focused on a few major themes surrounding this group of predominantly, what, what began predominantly as Jews believing in Yeshua of Nazareth as being their Messiah and then expanded to Gentiles. Here's the kind of the questions that he's trying to answer with this book. How did this movement spread so quickly? Secondly, what are the major tenets of its beliefs? Who are the key figures and leaders of this movement? And what role do non-Jews play in this movement? You're going to see these themes pop up all throughout the book of Acts. And Luke is trying to answer all these questions repeatedly through the book of Acts. Today's objectives are the following. We're going to talk about military structure of the Roman army. We're going to talk about Roman societal class. We're going to talk about Roman slavery. We're going to talk about Roman citizenship. We're going to talk about geography of the land of Judea. Then we're going to go into Jewish religions, religious sects of the first century. That's a lot of material to cover, but we're going to kind of just gloss over it really quickly. Go to just, you know, if you want to dig deeper, I'm going to put some resources at the end of the teaching today. You can dig deeper into these topics. But this is really important. Why do you see the word Roman up there so much? Because they were occupying the area in which all these events transpired. Yeah. And I'm going to show you a map here momentarily why that is. So there's some main contexts that we need to be aware of. We can't read the book of Acts in a a vacuum. We have to read the book of Acts knowing that there is a foreign army occupying the land in which all these events are transpiring. That foreign army had um, very prolific influence on the people of that land in terms of culture, law, uh, religion, language. And we got to understand that influence before we can understand the events and, and how they're kind of navigating through this influence, okay? So let's unpackage this a little bit. The, the Roman army is comprised at the time of about 28 legions, all right? And you've heard of a guy who was filled with demons. He said, they, um, they call me legion. Um, it's comprised of about 5,200 infantrymen and 120 auxilia. It's commanded by a legate which is someone of a senatorial rank, which we'll talk about here in a second what that means to be of a senatorial rank. All right, that's a legion. A legion is divided into um, 10 cohorts, 10 cohorts. A cohort is about 480 to 500 infantrymen. It's commanded by the most experienced of these men called a centurion, centurion, okay? Then a cohort is divided into what's called a centuria, a centuria is comprised ideally of about 100 men, but later on it became more like 80-ish, okay? But that's where we get, you see the prefix cent means 100. It was led by a man called a centurion, a centurion. So this would be like your, um, there's, there's military people in the room. This would be like your company commander, okay? Um, like, a, like a captain or something. 
Um, the centurion would gain equestrian status, which we'll talk about what that means here, upon re his retirement. The centurion, um, he gained the rank of centurion by some heroic feat in battle. Not everybody could be a centurion. It wasn't just time and service. It was some heroic feat in battle. Um, and it was a lifetime uh, obligation. Okay, as a centurion, he was going to be in there for a lifetime until he, he was ready for retirement. It wasn't just like a four-year enlistment and you know, he earned the rank of centurion and then he gets out. No, it was like a life, it was effectively a lifetime thing. Let's look at Acts 10 real quick. Turn with me to Acts 10. Yeah, we're skipping nine chapters. Acts 10. Acts 10. So Acts 10, verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea, which we'll talk about in a moment where that is. His name was Cornelius. He was a Roman officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. Okay? This would be like, um, this would be like uh, what's, what's an all-American like, army unit? I mean, like the 82nd Airborne, 101st, right? Like in Afghanistan. They're like, they're like the epitome of like an all-American infantry airborne unit, okay? This guy was part of the Italian regiment, meaning his, his regiment, his, his unit which, in which he commanded were all Italians. They were all from the motherland. You got me? Okay. He was a devout man, and he was a God-fearer, which we'll talk about what that is uh, at some point, a God-fearer, someone who's, who's um, uh, uh, pledging allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as was his whole household. He gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. And one afternoon around three o'clock, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius, Cornelius, um, he, Cornelius stared at the angel, terrified. That's where we'll stop there. We're going to get to there in about 10 weeks. But Cornelius is going to play a big role in the book of Acts. He's going to take up about two chapters in the book of Acts. Did you know that there's seven centurions mentioned in the New Testament? Seven. All of them are, are given favorable treatment by the New Testament writers. All of them. They all do something that's very significant or show a great degree of faith. Isn't that interesting? Seven of them, and all of them are shown with a positive light. You would think, wait a second, the Romans were occupying and oppressing and imprisoning and enslaving the Jews. Yeah, that's all true, but for some reason, all seven centurions in the New Testament are given this favorable treatment. So that's the centurion. If um, you want to learn about these seven centurions... Uh, someone did a study on it, wrote a paper about it. You can find it right there, and you're like, I can't click on that link. I don't worry, I can email you these slides, and you can click on the link, and you can read about all seven centurions. Really fascinating stuff. Well, how do the, how do the Romans get into the land of Judea? Because we open the book of Matthew, and suddenly there's this foreign army there called the Romans. But we have no context as to how they end up on the scene. Well, in 63 BC, there were some Hasmonean kings that were fighting over their throne. And guess what they did? They invited the Roman army to come help settle the dispute. And the Romans were like, sure, we'll take you up on that. <laughs> and we're not going away. And that's kind of what happened. The Romans set up shop. They occupied the land because they, they considered to be part of their, their empire in 63. But it was conquered by this general called Pompey. And it ended the Jewish independence. When did they gain their independence? You guys remember? The holiday is coming up. 1948. 1948, yeah. Yeah, Hanukkah, 167 BC. So they've been independent for, give or take, about 100 years now. They've been an independent Jewish state for 100 years. And then they invite the Romans in, and then that ends their independence. 63 years before the birth of, of Messiah. Okay? Now here is Josephus writing about this conquest. It was a very violent conquest. For he, Pompey saw the walls of Jerusalem were so firm that it would be hard to overcome them and that the valley before the walls was terrible. I remember I showed you those maps of the valley on either side and everything. And that the temple which was within that valley was encompassed with a very strong wall in so much that if the city were taken, that temple would be like a second place of refuge for the enemy to retire to. But yeah, they did. They, they ended up conquering uh, uh, the temple. They ended up taking it. Um, they actually went in and set up idol worship in the temple in 63, um, kind of like an abomination of desolation kind of thing. Uh, they carried away about, Josephus tells us about 93,000 slaves they carried out 
um, that were Jewish combatants. They, they took out into slavery. But this is, uh, moving on, this is the social class of Rome and kind of how they, how they, they divided themselves into classes, okay? Unlike the United States of America, um, if you were born into a certain class, you stayed in that class. And you had to be born into that class or you had to do something to elevate yourself to a different class. And it was a very widely known and accepted thing. Okay, whereas in the United States of America, we at least have the, the understanding, you know, hey, everyone's equal, everyone has a fair shot at life. There aren't classes here, okay? Sometimes people get wild hair thinking that there are, but there isn't classes in America. Every person, and you look at the top uh, Fortune 5, or no, what is it, Fortune 400, the top 400 wealthiest people in, in the United States of America, most of them, a vast majority of them were born in poverty. But here in Rome in the first century, if you were born into one of these classes, you predominantly stayed in one of these classes. So for instance, at the top here, we have Caesar and his imperial family. He was at the top, and he was likened to be God in the flesh. Okay? And uh, then you have senatorial uh, class. That's one of the guys that would – they would be the commander of a, of a legion. right? You served as a, as a legionnaire. Um, and then you have the equestrian rank. And remember we said that when a, a centurion retires from his army service – he enters the equestrian rank. That's a big deal. It's a big jump for him. Then you have aristocrats and magistrates. Then you have merchants, soldiers, and artisans. You have manual laborers who are free. Then you have freed slaves, and then you have slaves. Okay? Slavery was a big thing in the ancient Roman world. Slaves were often acquired through warfare. If you fought against the Roman army, you got caught. Guess what? You're a slave. Rome differed from Greek city-states in allowing freed slaves to become citizens. After a manumission, as it's called, a male slave who had belonged to a Roman citizen enjoyed not only passive freedom but from ownership, but also active political freedom, what we call libertas, including the right to vote. Uh, a slave could actually purchase their freedom. That's called manumission, when you buy your own freedom, uh, but it remained, he kind of remained part of the extended family. Or she remained part of the extended family. So you might work for your master during the day and do it free of charge. You don't have to, you know, you're just at their beck and call. And then maybe you have a job in the evening or the night where you go out and you sell some goods or, you know, you work for somebody else, but they actually pay you a small wage. You might save up that wage and then negotiate with your owner and say, hey, if, how much would it take to purchase my, my freedom? And then you save up that amount and purchase your freedom from that owner. Okay, then you're considered a free slave. And then you're stuck in that class of free slave. Okay, I'm supposed to read an article here. I've got to find my article. Here it is. Citizenship in ancient Rome was a privileged political and legal status afforded to free individuals with respect to laws, property, and governance. Roman women, so if you're a woman in the room, and let's pretend you're a Roman, you had a limited form of citizenship. You were not allowed to vote or stand for civil or public office. The rich might participate in public life by funding building projects or sponsoring religious ceremonies and other events. Women had the right to own property, to engage in business, and to obtain a divorce, but their legal rights varied over time. Marriages were an important form of political alliance during the Republic. Client state citizens and allies of Rome could receive a limited form of Roman citizenship, such as the Latin Rite. Such citizens would not vote or be elected in Roman elections. Freedmen, freed slaves, were former slaves who had gained their freedom. They were not automatically given citizenship and lacked some privileges, such as running for executive magistrates. Um, the children of freed slaves and women were born as freed citizens. So if I'm a slave, I buy my freedom from my owner, my children are then just considered normal Roman citizens. Okay? There's someone that a lot of biblical scholars speculate uh, did this. Does anyone want to guess? Paul. That perhaps Paul, remember he says my parents bought it at a price, bought their freedom, their citizenship at a price. Uh, we'll, we'll read that later in Acts. Paul perhaps was a, a child of, of some Jewish slaves in the Roman uh, um, diaspora, but we don't know for certain. Slaves were considered property and lacked legal personhood, or what they call in Greek persona. Over time, they acquired a few protections under Roman law. Some slaves were freed by manumission, for services rendered or through a testamentary provision when their master died. Once free, they faced few barriers beyond normal societal stigma. 
to participating in Roman society. The principle that a person could become a citizen by law rather than birth was enshrined in Roman mythology when Romulus defeated the Sabines in battle. He promised the war captives that they were in Rome, uh, uh, that were in Rome, they would become citizens. So that kind of set like a precedent for freed slaves. Here is the Roman Empire at its high water mark in 117 AD. Okay, so the events in the record in the Book of Acts are you know about mid 60s. This is Rome. Now Israel is right here, obviously. Rome is way over here. Okay, in the middle is the Mediterranean Sea, but all of this is Roman territory, vast empire, right? And this is the high water mark of that empire. The Romans loved to build these things called roads. And within this empire, there was around 50,000 miles of roads. And they liked to teach Greek. Greek was the, the, the official language of the Roman Empire. So I always like to say it's so important that the gospel came when it did. The Romans were always also obsessed with building ports and building up infrastructure of the places where they conquered, okay? Um, ports are really good to get people on and take them across an ocean, especially if they're carrying some kind of message with them, right? You can do that a lot faster. But roads just crisscross all over this empire, and you can go to places in Germany and Spain, and you can still see the remnants of these. How many of you have walked on a Roman road before? Yeah, some of you have. Good. Yeah, you can still see these roads to this day. They're still there thousands of years later. It's amazing. Mostly farm roads. Yeah, yeah, farm, like rural roads. So as we zoom in, here's the land of Judea in the first century. And let me kind of uh, familiarize yourself with this map here. Up north, we have Syria, and Damascus would be up here. Moving south, we have this area called the Galil. Right here, the Galil. This is kind of a hilly, rural area, semi-rural area that's predominantly um, agriculture and fishing-based economy. This is the Sea of Galilee. Okay, you have the town of Capernaum here, Capernaum. Then moving further south, you have Samaria right here. Samaria has a long history in the 10th century. Obviously, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. There was a lot of racial tension there. Then moving further south, you have the land of Judea. This is where, why, why um, the Jews are called Yehudim because uh, this is the land of Yehuda. Okay? So as you move further south, you have Idumea. Uh, this is the Jordan River that comes down through here, and it hits the Dead Sea right there. The Jordan River, that's going to play a part at some point as well. Let's talk about ports now. Ports are very, very important. Right here, the city of Jaffa, or in English, uh, Jaffa. There's an ancient port. Moving up the coast to the north here, you have the city of Caesarea Maritima. This was the headquarters of the Roman... Uh-oh, Amber Alert. Everybody in the room get an Amber Alert. All right. If this was a seventh grade classroom, I'd just be done for the day. <laughs> I'd be over. I'd be over. All right. That's our, that's our map. So oh, I was about to say Caesarea Maritima is the headquarters of the Roman, um, kind of be, be like Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima is the headquarters of the occupation of the Romans in, in the land of Judea. Okay? You guys probably have, you have this in the back of your Bibles probably, right? You probably say with that when you get bored when I'm teaching. Um, as we zoom in on the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is the city of the great king, the holy city. This is the spiritual capital of every Jew in the world at this time. Okay, this isn't the Roman capital. This is the Jewish capital of the world. And it sits on this hill right here, Mount Moriah, and then you have Mount Sion. So you kind of have these two hills. Then we have the Kidron Valley here and the Mount of Olives over there. On top of this is the Beit Hamikdash, a 36-acre plateau, surrounded by a colonnade. On the north up here, you have Antonia Fortress, where there's a cohort of Roman uh, cavalry and infantry living in this building right there, right next to the temple. Then you have the lower city, city of David, the upper city, where uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, during the execution of Yeshua, where he lived here. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a quick geography lesson of the city of Jerusalem. As we zoom in even further, this is a um, rendition of the temple, what it may have looked like in the first century. Um, this is the Eastern Gate. There was likely a bridge that came out here and spanned across the Kidron Valley. Once you get inside this Eastern Gate, then you have the beautiful gate here. 
the Nicanor Gate. This is the, the um, uh, court of the Israelites here. Right here you have the Soreg. This is a three-foot-high wall that told Gentiles you can't go any further. You had to stop there if you were a Gentile worshiper of the God of Israel. And yet, so this is the center. This building here used to be called the Tabernacle, and it was constructed with, with stone and gold. And, but that is the center of every Jew's universe. Okay, It's actually the center of our faith as well, except it's not there. We are a temple faith, but we lack a temple. And many will talk about many of the early followers of Yeshua, which they had about 40 years until that thing gets destroyed. Many of them still went and worshipped at this temple in various forms, and we'll talk about that. We'll actually see one particular uh, founder of our faith and father of our faith go there and um, actually, with the intention of making sacrifices there in the temple. We'll see that later um, in about 21 weeks. <laughs> but this is Antonia Fortress, what they think it may have looked like. This is where, like I said, a cohort of, of uh, Romans lived. They could actually stand on this, what is this called, Piapus? I don't know. And look down and see the sacrifices taking place on the altar. And that really bothered the priestly class at the time. They didn't like to, that it was visible to these, these uh, pagan Gentiles and this Roman uh, army. Then off to the side of the temple, so you see here's the holy place here. And this is the women's courtyard. And off to the side, about right there, you have this area called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. The Chamber of the Hewn Stone is where the 70 elders or the leaders of Israel met and deliberated over court cases. Like maybe a rogue rabbi out in the Galilee doing miracles and performing signs and all kinds of stuff. That's maybe where they tried him right there before the Sanhedrin. So 70 elders called the Sanhedrin. Uh, five of them are going to be these individuals called Pharisees. 65 of them are going to be these other group called the Sadducees, which plays a big role in how, the, the, how they treated Yeshua. And Paul, our friend Paul, is going to be standing right there, here towards the end of the book of Acts. And he's going to say, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Right there. And he's going to split the Sanhedrin, five being Pharisees, 65 being Sadducees. The guy right here, this is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. That's it. It's a courtroom, basically. It's a courtroom. It's a Torah-mandated courtroom. Let's talk about Jewish factions of the first century here. All right? First one, and probably the most numerous, the times of Yeshua, is the Pharisees, the Parushim. Parush means to be separated. It's separated. So Parushim are the separated ones. Okay? These were um, lower middle class to, to, to um, um, poor individuals who made it their point to study the laws of purity um, that, are, that are involved in the Torah and to teach them to all of Israel. These are the guys that would go into the synagogues and read the Torah, teach the Torah. Matthew 23 talks about, you know, when the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, do as they say, not as they do. The Pharisees were the teachers of Israel, so to speak. They were experts in the Torah. The Pharisees believed in this thing called the resurrection of the dead. They also believed in angelic and demonic beings. They believed in the free will of an individual. They were uh, what we would call today uh, Armenians. Yeah, Armenians. They believed in complete free will. All right. The, um, they were the most numerous, and they were largely liked by the people of Israel. They were popular. Okay. Then next class you have are the Sadukim, or the Sadducees. Sadducees believed in the written Torah, and that's all. They are kind of like the ancient ancestors of this group of Jews today, a very small sect of Judaism called Karaite Jews. Um, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in a coming Messiah, per se. They don't believe in angelic or demonic beings. They don't believe in a reward or a punishment in the afterlife. The Sadducees were just like the written Torah, and that's all. Okay? And the level to which they accepted the prophets as being authoritative is, is debated as well. Whereas the Pharisees believed in an oral Torah... The Pharisees believed in the prophets, in a coming Messiah. All right. Then you've got the zealots or the Kanaim. Kana, Kana means like zeal or jealousy. These guys were, uh, these guys were like the, the assassins. They were like the, the um, Mujahideen or the Al-Qaeda of the Jewish world at that time, if I can make that, um, that comparison. These guys were like willing to go out and actually murder Roman citizens um, or Roman officers or people who were colluding with the Romans, like a tax collector per se. 
Um, there was a, a zealot who was a follower of Yeshua. There was also a tax collector who was a follower of Yeshua, right? So those are the zealots. The next is the Essenes, the Essenes, and uh, they're kind of a uh, they're kind of a different category. Um, they were celibate. The, the the men in the Essenes were celibate, which is why they don't exist today. Uh, they did a ritual immersion every day. They were very mystical, and they believed that there would be this coming war between the, the, the evil and the good, and that there would be this messianic figure that would step in and lead them to victory. Um, they didn't believe that the priestly class that was operating in Jerusalem was legitimate. They thought that it was illegitimate, and they separated themselves from that and did not participate in the temple worship system whatsoever. Um, we think that these are the group of people that lived on the Dead Sea, the shore of the Dead Sea, and they had a commune set up there, and they were copyists, and they copied lots of books of the Bible, and they put them in, in jar, uh, put them in clay jars, and hid them in caves, and that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. Although there isn't any, it's all circumstantial evidence, but you know it's a pretty good theory. Some people think maybe John the Baptist had connections with these guys as well. John the Baptist coming from a priestly class, from a priestly line. Um, but yeah, that's. That's the, the four main sects of Judaism, of, of the Judaism, the religious Jewish facts at the time. Now, there were non-religious Jews that were Hellenized. They were Jew by birth, but they weren't practicing Judaism. They were practicing Roman religion or a-religious um, Jews. And uh, I'm supposed to read another article here. This is by uh, Shay Cohen. He's a, he's a professor of Judaic studies in, um, at, at Brown University. He says, in the first century of our era... There were many sects in schools in Jewish society. We hear about the Essenes, of course, the Jews of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, who separated themselves from the community at large and clearly constituted a sect, a group which thought it alone possessed the truth. Whether there were other sects or not, it's hard to tell. We know instead about other groups or schools or movements or parties. The most conspicuous of these parties or schools will be the Pharisees. The Pharisees are known to everybody from the New Testament where they enjoy a very negative press. The, they clearly are seen as opponents of Jesus and the, quote, bad guys. Who the Pharisees really were is a different question entirely. And once we get past the Jewish pol polemi uh, polemic and the anti-Pharisee polemic of the Gospels, and we realize the Pharisees were a conspicuous Jewish group, they seem to have been a scholarly group or group of Jews who, as Josephus, the historian, says, had a reputation as the most meticulous observers of the Torah. So here is a group which claim expertise in understanding the Torah of Moses and claim expertise in the observance of the laws. And apparently most Jews were prepared to accept that claim. Their opponents, of course, were the Sadducees, who were no less pious than the Pharisees. But the Sadducees did not believe in the authoritative nature of the ancestral laws. Uh, what, what did the Sadducees do, uh, do then exactly? We don't really know. Except the Sadducees apparently had a great deal of following among well-to-do, among the priestly class, and seem to have been characterized primarily by two things. One, they opposed the Pharisees, and two, they denied belief in the resurrection of the dead. A belief the Pharisees espoused and the Sadducees denied. And this, of course, made the Sadducees famous, as we see very clearly in the New Testament passages, where the only thing in the Gospels you know about the Sadducees is basically that, basically that they denied belief in the resurrection. But aside from these groups that we may call schools or parties, the Pharisees appear to us to be a school, and the Sadducees appear to us to be more of a social political party. There will have been a whole wide variety of other groups in Jerusalem, and perhaps in the countryside as a whole. Some of these are political movements, the revolutionary groups, the Sakari, the Zealots, who took the religious understanding of what Judaism was and took their religious interpretations and turned that into a political agenda. In other words, they might say, we must destroy the Roman Empire, or we must destroy Jews who cooperate with the Roman Empire. We will kill all collaborators. There's no king but God. And other such slogans emerge from these religious thinkers. And of course, the most important group of all are not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the Essenes, not the revolutionaries, but the plain Jews. Plain, simple folk who presumably lived their Jewish lives by following the ways they had always done. Whether mother or father taught them, that's what they do themselves. We may call them uh, simple piety. They are Jews who observe the Sabbath, who observe the holidays, the festivals, who go with the pilgrimage, go on a pilgrimage to the temple, 
who observe the Jewish food laws, the Jewish rituals, believe in the Jewish God, follow the ways by which to make life holy, follow the dictates of the Torah in a kind of simple, plain way. These are the plain folk, and these are the folk who are not Pharisees, not Sadducees, but simple Jews. And we get a glimpse of some of them in the pages of the New Testament. But these are probably the most numerous of all and the most important of all. I thought that was an interesting article. I want to share with you guys. So yesterday I was meeting a friend that I hadn't really seen and spent time with for several months. I was meeting him at a restaurant. And I walk into the restaurant, and there I see my friend with his back to the door. And he even like kind of turns and looks in my direction and then turns back and continues eating his food. So I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, I don't think he saw me. I'm going to walk up to him and I'm going to say something funny in his ear. And uh, so I did that. I kind of walked up and I, I leaned, down, you know, leaned down real low and I go, hey, are you going to save me any of that food? And he turns around and I see his face and guess what? It's not my friend. <laughs> yeah. And the guy was really nice and I'm like, Oh, as I, oh, I'm sorry. You, you, from behind, you look a lot like a friend I was trying to meet here today. I'm really sorry. And he kind of laughs it off, and I laugh, and I look up, and there's my friend over across the restaurant sitting there, and he's just like dying laughing, like, what is he doing? And uh, yeah, it was really funny, but I should have been like, hey, you want to just eat with us? You know, you kind of, kind of look alike. But anyways, I had this expectation, you know, as I walk into this restaurant, here's my friend. Oh, nope, that's not my friend, it's somebody else. And I was shocked by that, okay? I'm going to posit to you that that was going on in the first century in the times of Yeshua. When he comes on the scene, there was this expectation of what Messiah would look like. And then he didn't meet some of those expectations. And here is the messianic expectation of Judaism, okay? Number one, he has to be a male descendant of the Jewish King David. He has to be human, have a human birth, human parents, a perfect teacher of God's law, a great political leader. And a good judge, like inspirational, able to rebuild the temple. A ruler over all of humanity. The bringer of peace to the world. And able to unite humanity. Did Yeshua do all those things? He didn't rebuild a temple. He hasn't brought peace to the world, right? He hasn't unified the world and all of humanity, right? So is he disqualified as being Messiah? Here's the problem. This list was composed by a man in the 12th century by the name of Rambam. And that became codified in Jewish law in the 12th century. This medieval rabbi, Rambam, says, Ah, oh, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to have to do these things right here. If one man does not fulfill all these tasks, he is not the Messiah. He's a crazy man. Don't follow him. And this became codified and fossilized within Jewish understanding and expectations of the Messiah. So you hear anti-missionaries say, Well, he didn't bring peace to the world. Were you putting the Rambam there because he came up with that in the 12th century? Right? Yeah, Messiah will bring peace to the world. He will rebuild a temple. He will unify humanity. But that list, there's nothing in Scripture that says that he has to do all that in his first coming. So I see a question. Jewel, Joy. Well, uh, to me, you have the Jewish people, the Jewish people, She's alluding to the idea of the, the two natures of Messiah. Messiah, the son of Joseph, the suffering servant, and Messiah, the son of David, the conquering king. Um, but yeah, that's a really good point. Do you think the Judeans, Judaisms of Yeshua's day were unified in their expectations of who the Messiah would be? No, absolutely not. If you look at Judaisms today, for instance, Orthodox Judaism ascribes to the Rambam's list, to the T, by and large. Conservative Judaism, eh, is there even going to be a Messiah? Reformed Judaism, the Torah, oh yeah, wait, you believe in the Torah? Reformed Judaism is like, oh, I mean, you can, it's kind of just a novelty item. And there's really not going to be a Messiah per se. We kind of all have a Messiah in us that we just have to kind of realize and live out or something like that. Real weird and new agey. But Judaisms of today are not unified in that whatsoever. I mean, I, like I said, I've sat on, on, next to Jews on the plane and they believe that Menachem Schneerson, who lived in the 1990s, is the Messiah. And he's dead and gone. And he's dead and gone. They wait for him to resurrect still. Um, 
What if we read the book of Acts like this guy did? This is a painting of a man by the name of Theophilus. Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let's figure out who Luke wrote to. He says, Dear Theophilus, or Theophilos, as some might pronounce it. Who is this guy? Long story short, we don't know who Luke is writing to. We know that the, his name means a friend of God. Theo is God. Philos is like friend, friendly love. He loves God. He's a friend of God. Is he a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is he a worshiper? Is he a follower of Yeshua? We don't know. But what if we read the book of Acts like he did? So Luke finished the letter, finished the, the history book, the 28 chapters. Then he somehow gets it to Theophilus. Theophilus is going to unroll it. He's going to open it, whatever he's going to do, and he's going to begin to read it. I'm going to submit to you that I think it's best we read it like he did with that context in mind. There's a lot of people who are going to approach the book of Acts with a lot of bias. One of those biases, a pet peeve of mine, is replacement theology. That uh, there's the New Testament and there's Israel. I'm sorry, there's the Old Testament, there's Israel, there's law. All that's connected together. And then the cross happened and now there is the new entity called the church. There's grace and that we are all governed by grace and that we have to just be okay with living in Christ's righteousness, whatever that means. Um, and that's, that's replacement theology. Israel is done for the time being, if not for good. And now there's this new entity. Well, we're going to get to Acts chapter 2 here in a couple weeks, and we're going to put that on trial and see if that, that rings true. Because that's often touted as the chapter where the church began. And we're going to, we're going to put that on trial and see if that's true. We're going to test that. But let's read it like Theophilus. Can we do that? So let's review, and I'm going to leave you some resources and some homework. We didn't flip through a lot of pages of scripture today, um, but I, I gave you a lot of history today. But you're going to be doing that throughout the week. First one, let's review. This Jewish sect believed in and adhered to the written Torah and dismissed the notion of angels, reward in the afterlife, and were the ruling priestly class in the first century. Who were they? The Sadducees, good. The Sadducees, good. You guys are listening. Number two, the conquest of Judea by Rome was carried out when and led by who? Pompey, 63 BC. Okay, so 100 years. Oh, can I go back here real quick and show you guys? That reminded me, I, I failed to mention where these people were taken to. So Judea is there. The Romans come in, conquer that. Anybody who fought against them and all of their families are going to get exported and sold to slavery all these provinces all over the Roman Empire. So you have about 100,000 Jews being scattered all over the Roman Empire, thus starting what's called the fourth Jewish exile, the Roman exile, which technically has not come to a close yet. It's the exile of Edom, as they might say. It has not come to a close yet. So that's where they're taken to. Now we're going to pay close attention to that because some of these places we're going to see pop back up in Acts chapter 2, where these people were taken. So by the time we get to the book of Acts, they have been there for a hundred years. Picture that. So if several of us as families in the room, we were conquered by a foreign army, and then we were taken and transplanted someplace a couple thousand miles away... Give those few families a hundred years, what would happen? We would multiply, right? And they're all going to look different. They're all going to look different. They're all going to take on the language of the land in which they've been scattered. There's going to be some degree of assimilation, right? They may intermarry, yeah. But we are going to hold on to the nucleus of our faith, the Torah. Right? And we're going to try to study it into original language. We're going to try to live it out even way out here in this province known as Galatia. And we're going to do that. And, and, and we're going to be faithful to that as the best of our ability. And for a hundred years, they do that to the best of their ability. In Rome, in Cappadocia, in, in Colossae, like all these like, uh, like random provinces in which they've been scattered. They're going to be faithful for about a hundred years. They're going to create these little schools of Torah. These little satellites of the temple, 
They can't make it to the temple every year. They're going to create a satellite version of the temple where in, in they go to the satellite version of the temple, they're going to hear the same prayers read that are prayed in the temple. They're going to hear the Torah read. They're going to go through the motions without the sacrifices and all that stuff. And what do we call those little satellite embassies of the temple? Synagogues. Synagogues. Yeah. These synagogues are going to get set up all over the Roman Empire. And that's very important. In terms of the spreading the gospel. Because when we're going to see our friend Paul, when he does these missionary journeys, he doesn't go to the First Baptist Church of Galatia. Where does he go? He goes to the synagogue in Galatia. Why? Because that's where the people who know the scriptures have been waiting for the Messiah. That's where they're sitting and waiting. They're going through the motions. They're being faithful to the Torah. And then Paul comes in the scene. Guys, guess what? Messiah came. Here's what happened. Here, I can prove it to you. And we're going to get into that here later, but... It's very important that we understand that. hundred years they've been in these provinces waiting for the Messiah. Let's go on to our review questions again here. Um, the book of Acts spans about how many years? 30 years of history. Can you, can you guys write a 30-year history book and record 24 speeches and, and name 100 names by name and name 80 geographical references? I couldn't. It's going to take a lot of investigation, a lot of interviewing people for me to write that, that much volume of text. Um, to whom, oh, I'm sorry, name one major theme of the book of Acts. Holy Spirit, perhaps? The, the role of the nations. The role of the Gentiles and the nations in this movement that we're going to see emerge. That's a big one. Any other ones? What's a major? Yeah, Joy. The of, uh, the, the number of people that were lost in the Torah portion when the earth swallowed them up, they were added back in the book of Acts. Yeah, when the Levites went through after the golden calf. Yeah, yeah. It's a reversal of something, yeah, which we'll talk about in that chapter two as well. What's another? There's one true God, yeah, monotheism. One true God among many gods. It's another major theme. Yeah. Who's the leader of this movement? What are the names of this movement? Uh, why is this movement spreading so quickly? Those are some other themes we're going to see. Um, yeah, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in Acts 2. Um, to whom was Acts written? Theophilus. What does that mean? The friend of God, yeah. Going by volume and word count, who wrote most of the New Testament? Luke did, 27%. In what language is Acts recorded? The Greek language, unfortunately. I wish it was Hebrew, because that would be really easy and, and nice. But some resources I'm going to use as we progress through the book of Acts and read it, obviously the book of Acts. But obviously, um, in addition to that, I should say, uh, Backgrounds of Early Christianity. I've told you guys about this book many a times. It's a college textbook. You can buy it on Amazon. I think we have it in our library. Um, but it's a great read. If you, want, if you want to dig into the history, a great read. Um, I see people taking pictures and stuff. Is it a me or the slide? <laughs> Maybe both. It's a... All right, here's another book that I, I really highly recommend if you want to dig into this topic. It's In the Shadow of the Temple. Okay. In the Shadow of the Temple, Jewish Influences on Early Christianity. Really good book. These are like college textbooks. They're, kind of, they're not like a narrative form and kind of dense stuff to read. Um, these are some websites that I'm going to draw from as we go through, and I highly recommend you become familiar with as well. Is uh, Blue Letter Bible, the Bible Hub. And then I'm going to draw a lot from this text, this early, early rabbinic text called the Mishnah. And it's available for free, and you can read the Mishnah on that website right there, Sepharia. Why is that? Because the Mishnah is the religious backdrop of the New Testament. It gives us an insight into what a lot of the early rabbis and theologians of Yeshua's day were thinking and believing and teaching. Okay, Now I'm going to draw a lot from that. All right? So here's your homework, as I promised. Your homework includes, I want you to read Acts chapter 1 and 2. Can you do that for me? Wow, a lot of, a lot of cameras going up. People, this, this side of the room is writing, and this side of the room is photographing. <laughs> These are people born before a certain day, before and after a certain day. Okay, read Acts chapter 1 and 2. Can you do that? Become familiar with it. You can read it more than once. Hey, God, I recommend reading the whole book of Acts in a day, too. Try it. It's really interesting. You'd be amazed at what you pick up. Also, I want you to research, what is a Sabbath day's walk? And how far is it? Where does it come from? A Sabbath day's walk? Is that like a walk you take on the Sabbath? What is that? 
Look that up and tell me if you can um, if you can discover that. In the book of Acts, what are the three names of the movement and which one is used the most? If you take uh, if you take biblical Hebrew with me, you know that. You know those three the three names. Keep your answers up, Joy. Which which of those names? Okay, last one. What method was used to select the twelfth disciple? Wink, wink. All right. So see if you can get those, scrounge up some of those answers for me. And we'll be ready to delve into Acts chapter 1 this time next week. Are you guys excited? All right, we're going to try to cover a chapter a week. So you guys do your, do your research. Be Bereans, which that will make sense later in the book of Acts. Be Bereans. Study the book of Acts. Read it and become familiar with it before you come in. Because I am a teacher by heart. I'm not a preacher. Okay, I like interaction from you. So if you have something to add to the conversation, shoot your hand up and I'll call on you and you just interact with me. I love that so much. And there's so many things that you maybe learned that I didn't and you can add to our, our, our body of information and knowledge and experience. Okay, makes sense? So with that, let's close in prayer and then we're gonna do Q&A. We've got a few minutes. Abba Father, I thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And I thank you for men like Luke who painstakingly investigated the matters and the, the historicity of, of our movement. And just give us a heart that is willing to look at this book objectively. And may we strive to be like this early movement that was uh, just so sold out and zealous for you in the gospel. We thank you for your son, Yeshua, who bled and died on our behalf. Oh, we were undeserving of it. May we worship and live and walk and eat and study in a way that is worthy of that dying for. In his precious name, I pray. Amen. All right, I see hand. Yeah, Karen. You just brought the, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were actually one book. There's some that speculate that. Um, but no, because he, he, he clearly delineates it here. He says, um, in the first book, I wrote about everything Yeshua set out to do and teach until the day when. So he's, he's making delineation between these two books. But they are to be read. Like a sequel. So you read Luke, you should go right into Acts. They're written by the same author, um, very same, very similar style of writing and researching. But no, they're they're clearly two separate books. Not part of the canon, you're saying? Yes, the inclusion of the book of Luke in hmm. Acts is actually very recent. I mean, like, not, not hmm. I've never heard that. Oh, yeah, maybe Jeremy's right. Jeremy's say, saying that maybe, maybe you're referring to Marcion's yeah. uh, version of what should be in the canon of Scripture and what shouldn't. Yeah, and Marcion was oh, heretic and did a lot of damage to the early movement. Unfortunately, um, but yeah, very good questions. Thank you. Any other questions? Are you good? Yeah. All right, uh, Jeremy. Sort of interesting thought the other day about Theophilus uh, you know, being a friend of God. In mm-hmm. Acts, it wasn't a person, but mm-hmm. kind of referring to the reader as being a friend of God. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, Jeremy is saying there's a theory floating around that maybe Theophilus or Theophilos is not a person, but rather a group of people who are friends of God, and that maybe he's writing to a group of people. So. I don't ascribe to that, but I could see, yeah, I mean, you could, you could it, it, it is, I think it's both, I think it's both, um, that it's written for the edification of all the assemblies and all the groups of believers and friends of God, but also I think it was specific to your person. So, Howard, what's your hand? Yeah, in, in line with that, uh, the book of Luke, uh, there's this uh, address that they are the same way in the book of Acts. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Luke was to the same person, yeah. Yep. Thank you. Joy. What is your What are your thoughts on people who have um, interpreted or rewritten? Not, there's There's a lot of um, been revealed that Matthew was probably written in Hebrew, and I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But I don't know if you've seen people that have written the Gospels. Um, we actually got I got a copy of it a few years back, I think 2018, by a guy that. 
Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Let me repeat your question so that people can hear and not answer. Uh, she's asking, what are my thoughts on and what do I believe about perhaps some books of the New Testament being originally written in Hebrew? I know. I, I, I've heard and understood that Matthew was one of them. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, people that, like, we have, I don't remember the guy's name. He wrote Eight Great Lights. What was his name? He came Darren Huckey. Yes. Yeah. The David Hebrew Gospels. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy doing that. Um, so let me answer the first part of the question: Were some of the books in the New Testament written in Hebrew? We have one um, oral tradition from I think Jerome. Is it Irenaeus? Yeah, thank you. Who said what, what century? Second century. Second century. Who said that Matthew initially wrote the book in Hebrew? That would be amazing if we had that, if we have an extant manuscript of that book, but we just don't. Um, I would love for that to be the case because it would be so smooth to read. And there's a lot of, you can see that in Matthew, there are a lot of Hebraisms that are clothed in Greek. So I could totally see how it would be originally written in Hebrew. But the earliest, pretty much all any Hebrew manuscript we have of Matthew is a translation. Like for instance, the Baal Shem Tov Matthew, was written by rabbis trying to counter missionaries so that they could become f- familiar with the Gospel of Matthew so that they could refute missionaries. Um, but that's the Balashim Tov Matthew. Uh, but yeah, I, I really wish that. Um, with In terms of the Davis Hebrew Gospel, um, I, like, I have a Hebrew Bible that's both the Old and New Testament, and it's all Hebrew, and I like that. But you just have to know, you have to understand that that's a translation from Greek into Hebrew. Um, I really like... I think I'm a firm believer that to really understand, like, let's say the book of Acts, um, you really just need to, to be kind of familiar with, with Greek and really dig into the Greek of that, yeah. And then, so. what are your thoughts on the Acts being the fifth book of what we would call the Great Hadassah or the Renewed Covenant? I mean, I hate Marxism mm-hmm. and what it stands for, and I do understand that, but yeah. it's, to me, it's such a, like, a, um, the letter K is such a lightning, it's like grace. Yeah, I don't know if Luke knew that he was writing the fifth book of the New Testament, so I don't want to read too much into that. But yeah, I mean, it's it, perhaps it's a good way of looking at. It. Yeah, I see you. Um, there's a gentleman named Hemi Gordon mm-hmm. who is he's a Jew. And yeah, Karaite. Karaite Jew. Yeah. Yeah. If I could uh, talk to that, I'm, I'm very familiar with that. I've met him multiple times and have studied, read many of his books. Yeah. Um, the copy of Matthew that he has is the Baal Shem Tov Matthew. Okay. Um, it is a very new, in terms of like manuscripts, it's a very new manuscript. He wrote a book, for instance, uh, called Greek Jesus First Hebrew Yeshua, I think it's called. I read that. I loved it. watched the lecture. Unfortunately, it's all wrong. <laughs> and here's why. Um, he, there's, there's, I think, nine manuscripts of the Baal Shem Tov Matthew, if I'm not mistaken. Right. He took one of those nine that fit his premise. The premise being, Matthew 23, Yeshua says, As they sit on the seat of Moses, do as it says, and not as they say. He found that one copy of the Baal Shem Tov Matthew that says that, and then he wrote a book positing that, hey, if it were originally written in Hebrew, it would say, do as it says, not as they say. you got to understand, coming from a Karaite background, Nehemiah Gordon doesn't want anything to do with an oral Torah or any kind of like rabbinic interpretation of the Torah. So that jives with his, with his understanding that he can't have Yeshua saying, do as the Pharisees say, not as they do. He would rather it say, do as the Torah says, not as they do. But then, how can you say then, say what the, do the Pharisees say when he's telling you right before that, like two verses before that, and two or three verses after that, don't do what the Pharisees say you do. That doesn't fit at all. I mean, Yeah, I, I didn't see the verse do before that. Don't do it, but do yeah. it. You know, he says to them, don't do what the Pharisees do because they're hypocrites. And they yeah. have all of these things that are not in the Torah. Yeah, he says repeatedly, don't do 
what they do. Um, because they're hypocritical. They're teaching the Torah, they're interpreting the Torah, but then they're not really doing it. Um, but yeah, I would say, um, there, let, me, let me go back to the, the Matthew 23 thing and the, the Hebrew Matthew. Um, there's a, a really good study by a man named Tim Haig, and the title of this study, I think it's 76 pages long, the title of it is Why Nehemiah Gordon is Wrong About Matthew 23. Look it up and read it. It completely changed my mind on that book and the scholarship of, of, his, of, of that book. Um, it, it, it's kind of astonishing. <laughs> I highly recommend I don't want to slander anybody or anything like that, but um, it will change your perspective on that. Um, we're going to get into this a little bit in the book of Acts, but the followers of the way were very closely related to the sect of the Pharisees. Really, in the first century, some people would say, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Then you're a Pharisee. Now, to what extent you observe Pharisaical law and tradition, that might vary. But there was like, that was the deciding factor. If you believe in the resurrection, you're a Pharisee. So we all in this room, if you believe in the resurrection, would, to some in the first century, be considered a Pharisees. They were pro Um So no, you have to look at the, 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 um, the bias of people as they're writing books and then be very careful um, as to what level of scholarship they put into it. But I was very familiar with, very familiar with it. Um, but I, I saw a hand and I saw a hand. Did you still have a thought? Uh, I was just gonna add something on the seed of Moses. I think we assume that we know what that means. Um, is it an actual chair? Is it just a metaphor for authority? But is it a place where just the Torah is read or the commentary? So we, we would have to find out that before saying, like, how could Yeshua say this or that, right? If, if the seed of Moses is just where the Torah is read, then he can very easily say, do what they tell you, because they're reading the Torah. I don't, I'm not claiming to know what the seed of Moses is. There's different ideas about that. Yeah. It could work. Yeah, obviously, they had come up with some things that were definitely not Torah. Yeah, like absolutely. You can divorce your wife well, or this or that. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And he calls them out on that, thankfully. But one of the interesting things, he says, um, you've neglected the weightier matters of the Torah. Like, like um, you, you, you tie the mint and the cumin, um, but you neglect the weightier. And he says, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. But if you look, tithing mint and cumin are not a commandment in the Torah. It's a pharisaical tradition. Um, but he's saying, Yeshua is attesting, you should do the former without neglecting the latter. Um, hand washing, for instance, a pharisaical tradition. Uh, if you look at Matthew, oh, Mark chapter 7, um, some of the disciples are washing their hands. Some are not. Yeshua probably did as well. Um, there's a lot of tradition. And you got to understand, like, these apostles, these disciples of Yeshua are coming from all different backgrounds. Like, everybody in this room is coming from a different background. So they're going to they're gonna know and observe different levels of Pharisaical tradition. Um, but it seems like Yeshua took more issue, not so much with himself keeping tradition of the rabbis, Rather, abrogating the written commandment of the Torah for the sake of that tradition. Does that make sense? Yes. So, for instance, did you pray before you ate dinner last night? Pharisaical tradition. Um, whereas the Torah specifies, you say the birkat hamatzon, the, the, the blessing after the meals. And that's okay. It's a good tradition, right? It's a beautiful tradition to pray before you eat and thank God and pause and say, hey, let's, let's do this, right? But do we abrogate a written commandment do that? No, we don't. So it's kosher. We can do that. And it's a beautiful tradition. But Stacy, I saw your hand. Yes, Tim Hegg, H-E-G-G, why Nehemiah Gordon is wrong about Matthew 23. Yeah, check it out.
discovering that the church has been doing things falsely because of Constantine. Mm -hmm. It's only been this past summer. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is all very new for us. Yeah. Um, so we're bathed there. <laughs> you're, a great place to be. Yeah, you're in, you're in a, a very pivotal phase of this. Um, one that I liken to like a sponge where you're like synapses are firing in your brain that you're like, whoa, and you're getting, you know, just like these surges of like information and revelation. It's a wonderful experience. And you're like, wow, I didn't, you're, you're, you're like the Egyptians that were under Zafnath Panea when Zafnath Panea said, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. And the Egyptians are like, what? He's a, he's a Hebrew shepherd boy who has a different name and a whole different family and lineage we know nothing about. And it's like, I want to know everything about this savior who saved our nation and our country. And it's a wonderful phase to be in. Um, Sometimes, and I did this, I'm not saying you guys are guilty, anybody who's guilty of this. I, Gabe Rutledge, when I was in that like, soak everything up phase, I did so to the detriment of discernment. And thinking, okay, you know, a sponge is going to soak up anything you put a sponge in. But a real student of the Bible is going to slow down and say, okay, wait, let me, let me analyze everything and let me examine this in the light and the historicity of the, of the Gospels and the teachings of Messiah. And really, like, don't, don't get swept up by emotion or anything like that. And I fell prey to that. And I, I absorbed, unfortunately, like a sponge, so many toxic stuff and, and, and people's emotions and anger and resentment and unforgiveness um, and it, it's taken me so long to work through that and forgive people and, and no, okay, you know what? No, every pastor out there is not, has a, doesn't have the secret agenda where they all know and have taken some secret oath to Constantine or something like that. Like, it doesn't exist. It's just, they just, they, they're busy human beings, don't have a lot of time to study the writings of, you know, on these people. And they just, they're too busy visiting hospital rooms and, and counseling people and trying to save people's marriages and taking phone calls at three in the morning and they're just busy individuals and it's probably not this big agenda. They just they're just busy being shepherds. So um, yeah, I thank God. I think I thank the Holy Spirit for giving us the revelation that we've had and um, may we use it for good and for the repair of the body of Messiah. So, but no, thank you guys for your question and your insight. It's